Written by E.B. Davis Before dawn, the people of the town got to work as usual, despite the holiday. It wasn't a big town, way up in Utland, on the side of a low but steep hill leading right down to a small but well-protected harbor. It was bigger than when it had been a sleepy little fishing village. Now it was growing up as a small but proud member of the Hansa. Its sailors were now traveling all over the world and had earned a proud reputation as stalwart and able seamen. Its port was known for its depths. 100 gun ships of the line could and did berth right against her docks and not worry about beaching. Once, years ago, a local young man, the son of a wealthy merchant, had sounded the depths of the bay with a heavy stone and a long rope. It turned out that the steep slope just kept going right down under the water. That man had gone on to Copenhagen and university to be a professor of some sort and had never returned. That was fine enough for the townsfolk. They were a superstitious folk and felt the depths of the sea were best left unknown and unexplored. Still, a model of the bay, water removed, that the man had made still sat gathering dust on a shelf in City Hall. As more and more of the town's residents awoke, some made small gestures out of respect for the holiday. Mothers added a bit of nutmeg to the breakfast porridge. Old retired sailors poured themselves a half ration of rum the children of the well-to-do families each enjoyed a ripe orange. For a trading vessel up from Tripoli had made call the week previous. Overall, though, the mood of the town was melancholy and stifled. Three ships from the town, three ships that had left port long ago, were now long overdue. Three ships, full of men and lads of the town, were feared sunk. The first had been the Drage, sent out to India and points east. That had been during the July of the year previous, when the weather was fine and the seas were calm. The second had been the Dula Green, sent out in October of that same year, bound for the Spanish colonies around the Horn. The third, Zwarte Pete, off to the British colonies in America this last January. All told, 148 men shipped out, boys, greenhorns, and mates. They left behind 112 mothers, 123 wives, 422 children with nine on the way, along with uncountable sisters, cousins, aunts, nieces, lovers, and sweethearts, all of whom were fearing their loss to one degree or another. It wasn't just their lateness that hung over the town like a storm cloud, there had been three great storms to blow through in recent months. Each one of them could have sunk one or all of the tardy ships. The first had been in October, just a great powerful blow that had come from the southwest. Warm air from far away. They say that steeples and clock towers had blown over in England and northern France, killing parsons and public alike. Fishermen caught in the North Sea had claimed that the waves had piled up so high with a clear blue sky above that they almost seemed to have glowed a queer emerald green. At least, those who made it back made that claim. The second had been in November, from the West, 
Wild winds had blown every which way, and the rain fell so hard for three days that some worried that it was the second deluge. This time, the fishermen had nearly exhausted themselves with bailing. The winds and clouds had made finding their way back to port a living nightmare. Dikes had failed in the low countries, and those who hadn't drowned had their farms turned to swamps and acres of mud. The third had been earlier this December. It had been a terrible blizzard straight out of the north. For two days, the townsfolk could hardly make it up or down the steep cobblestone streets without getting lost in the whiteout. Those who lingered outdoors were in danger of losing their earlobes or fingertips to frostbite. After the storm, there were three more days of horrible cold. Breath turned to ice crystals with each exhalation. The harbor was in danger of freezing over. Then it was gone as fast as it had come. The fishermen of the North Sea who had been out when the storm hit did not come back to report their experience. Only the timbers of their little boats washed up on a shore. One or all three of the overdue ships could have been caught in one or all of those storms. The mood of the town was still dark. On Christmas Day, in the morning. In the middle of the morning, when the last child was roused from his slumber, and the last of the crusty old salts had worked the stiffness out of his joints, the dark clouds in the sky parted, the sea mist lifted, and there, out in the distant horizon, were three ships a-sailing, heading straight for home. All of their sails, from the mizzen sky sail to the flying jib, were unfurled, and they seemed to gleam white in the newly woken sunlight. Only a few of the townsfolk noticed the sails at first, but word spread faster than man could run. Shouts roared up the steep, narrow streets as fast as reflex and sound. Many weren't sure they could believe their ears, but then the church bells high on the hill began to ring. The whole town was soon overfilled with joy. Mothers heard their children in thick winter clothing, preparing to go see their fathers off the gangplanks. Old souls treated themselves to a second half allowance of rum, and then one full ration because they only had so many years left to enjoy it. The townsfolk all bundled up bustled out into the street, asking their neighbors if their hopes were true. Then they simply looked for themselves, for the streets all had a fine view of the harbor. Sure enough, steady and true, the Zwarte Piet, the Dulagrid, and the Drage were in the harbor and making straight for the docks. The people started making their way down the winding streets, housings and buildings here and there, temporarily blocking their views of the beloved ships. All were asking questions and chatting with their neighbors. So whither had the three ships been all this time? It was a question on all their lips this Christmas day in the morning, though none had known the truth. The last ship to leave had the shortest journey. Zwarte Piet made her call in the Massachusetts colony in America, in the town of Kingsport. Formerly Konigshaven before the English had annexed it. Formerly Kungingsham before the Dutch had annexed it. The name of the land before the Swedish colonized it is lost history, and for good reason. At first the sailors of the Zwarte Piet were lost in a heavy fog and spent many days with their sails reefed. Finally, a greenhorn in the crow's nest spotted a light coming from a house atop a strange hill just outside of town. 
the fog soon parted and the ship was able to dock. The second ship, the Dula Great, made for the relatively predictable waters of the Strait of Magellan, yet a strange and strong wind blew them off course and she found herself rounding Cape Horn the hard way through the roaring forties. Many days later, battered and bruised, she found herself beclaimed in the southern waters of the Pacific and remarked at how apt Magellan's name for the ocean had been. They repaired their sails and timbers, their bruises healed and their appetites resumed and they made for the nearest possible port. They finally tied up in the misty city of Zebico, conquered by the Spaniards who now ruled as elite. The bones, the famous stonework of the city had been built by the skilled hands of the native masons. In scale, they could have been described as cyclopean, but in form consistent with the polygonal dry ashlar jointed stones of the finest craftsmanship. This extended all the way from the breakwaters down at the quay to the stone fencing surrounding the particularly singular cemetery on the hill. The first ship to leave had the longest journey, the Draj, and had meant to find harbor in India. She had provisioned in Zanzibar, then headed off to the east. Yet at some point in the middle of the Indian Ocean, she had been struck by a terrible cyclone. By an unholy miracle, she found her way into the storm's eye and from there lingered within its confines for days. All bearings were lost, and her men struggled with every ounce of strength to stay away from the eye walls. At night, only the most seasoned of her crew could recognize the stars visible through the narrow eye of the storm. When the sun was up, strange colors ranging from turquoise to bizarre maroons manifested in the colossal swells and blowing mists all originating from the sun's obscured light, which could be discerned by its presence, but not its direction. Finally, before dawn on the fourth day, the storm dissipated. The sea was calm. After a swarm of colorful butterflies landed on the ship and then flew off again, the men of the Draj felt a sensation of standing on their heads, followed by the sound of a trillion buzzing black flies when they awoke, they found themselves in the beds of the hotels and inns and brothels of legendary Carcosa. The Draj was secure, tied up at the docks of that famed city's legendary lake. The crew in this dreamy land made by while the skipper and the supercargo went about their dark business. The ever-growing masses of the little town in Newland made their way down the hill to the docks where they found the ships already moored this Christmas day in the morning. In their excitement, they hadn't noticed the strange expressions of the dog crew who had been closest when the ships approached and had been the ones to tie the knots on the dock lines. They hadn't noticed either how the very same dock crew had been attempting to flee the docks and were frantic to fight against the surging crowd pushing in the other direction. They had been content to wipe their children's noses or pinch their cheeks to make them ruddy, or to gossip with the other man's wife marching next to them. What was on those ships, all three, they asked, on Christmas Day in the morning? The Zwarte Pete had her hold full of frankincense, brimming over into the bilge space and every available drawer and container. 
The strange and magical incense was made from a tree sap that grew in the deserts of East Africa and far corners of Arabia. By no right should it have been found in the ports of New England, though ports were always very strange, where commodities from all over the great round could be found for sale. Stranger still was the volume. Tiny amounts of frankincense were worth king's ransoms. A merchantman full of the stuff was worth more than the commoners knew numbers for. On the Dula Great, there was myrrh. Rarer still than frankincense, myrrh had a similar origin, the sap of a kind of thorny bush from Arabia. No doubt some trading vessel from Jeddah or Aden had made her port of call there, in Zebico, and unloaded her cargo. The supercargo of the Dilligrant had no doubt fetched a better price than the middlemen of Zebico. As for the cargo of the Drage, no, it was not gold. It was something far more valuable and far more dangerous. Her hold contained only a single book, a massive book, bought with the dearest of prices in Dark Corcosa, as dark as its cover and binding. It was a massive thing, a grimoire as massive as the table that bore it. On her return journey, the crew of the Drage had avoided its presence the way feral animals avoid a campfire, for they were illiterate, and only the Drage's captain and her two passengers understood the book's contents and its import. There was an awkward moment as the townsfolk gathered on the dock. They looked to and fro, but found that the usual dock workers seemed to have evaporated into the crowd. The Suarte Pete had a gangplank already positioned and mounted, though there was no one to give the permission aboard, neither stevedore nor ship's officer. Anxiousness, loneliness, and other emotions too uncouth to mention finally overwhelmed the wives as they rushed their way up the gangplanks. Confusion overtook them. Everywhere they looked, every hatch they opened, they could not find their men. The Suarte Pete had docked, but there wasn't a soul aboard. The wives of the crew of the Dula Great found a similar absence of their husbands, though it was a very different experience. The ship laid low in the water with the weight of all the life she carried. When they opened the doors and hatches, they found sea life in every crevice and corner, as if the ship had spent years under the sea. There were giant barnacles and clams, Seaweed like green mermaid's hair hung from the rafters. There were starfish uncountable, purple and gold and orange. Some giant forms had over 20 arms. Sea urchins, big and small, threatened with their spines in every direction. In the captain's quarters, across his desk, was a devilfish of gigantic proportions. Its grayish, purplish tentacles writhed and twisted towards the women who dared venture this far. No townsfolk born to the Drage, no. When the gangplank was fixed, she had borne the beast, the Antichrist, and his lady. And then all the bells in the world did ring. And the heavens themselves opened up. And all of the angels screamed. On Christmas Day in the morning.
Thank you for listening. Bit of a Christmas contest going on on Odd Directions right now. The theme is Christmas carols, as, as you can see. On Christmas Day in the morning. As up to his way scarier, right? Anyway, you might want to pop over there and vote on your favorite Christmas carol stories. Thanks a bunch.